The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's head down to Washington, D.C., and let's talk policy. We've got a couple. Of, the midterms are over. We kind of know where we are there. The question is, what can our good friends in Washington, D.C. get done in the next couple of years before we have another uh, election cycle upon us? Nathan Dean, he's a senior policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, for better or worse, he's based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Nathan, you're down there in the pit that is Washington, D.C. What do you and your expert buddies down there think that Washington can get done in the next couple of years, this administration, this Congress? So, you know, a lot of it's going to come down to the horse trading and the negotiations over these must-pass pieces of legislation, like the government shutdown. And this is what we're seeing right now with the omnibus uh, package. You know, don't think about bills that have to be bipartisan. Think about bills that have bipartisan warmth. And what I mean here is, is that they may not be economic, grandiose, fiscal-stimulating bill, bills, but these are bills that are more in the trenches and more in the sectors. For example, I'm tracking a bill right now that Senator Durbin has put out there that would increase competition for Visa and MasterCard. Bad for them, good for American Express and Discover. Now, you would normally think that this bill doesn't have a chance of passage, but Target and Walmart like it. And if Target and Walmart like it, then maybe, you know, Walmart being in Arkansas, the Arkansas senators would like it. And so even <laughs> though this is something that's not huge, these sector bills that would increase costs, drive revenues down, make competition more, uh, more important or more, more competitive, for example, these are the things that actually do have a chance of passage. You won't see them on the, on the front page of the headlines, but it's something you've got to pay attention to. Sorry, sorry about Blue that, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, a rookie here. Uh, but, you know, Nathan, something I've been wondering about, too, in this kind of second half of the Biden administration, uh, first term here, do you think that certain deals might not be able to go through here with some of the pressure here on antitrust and concerns about consumer protections? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there will be more failed chances at deals than successful deals. And what I mean by that is, you know, and we'll just take the elections, for example, you know, the Democrats have now have 5149. They can tear up the power sharing agreement, and so they can move forward much quicker in the Senate with legislation. So you're going to see more progressive-style legislation come out. It could drive up headline risk, but, again, you need the House of Representatives to go forward with it. So what will happen is, is that nothing will happen, and then you'll get to this time where the government's going to shut down or the debt ceiling is going to occur and so forth like that. And then they'll horse trade, and they may get something done, they may not. But the failures were outweigh the successes. Just keep in mind that even for things like FTX and crypto right now, the Republicans have said, we want to do something. The Democrats have said, we want to do something. But there's something differs. And in more times than not, Congress would much more likely kick the can down the road and say, we'll figure it out. Now, with the second term, to your point, we have a presidential election that's already kicked off. By the end of 2023, most of Washington will have turned its focus away from doing deals and turned it onto the presidential politics. 
And if President Biden were to announce next year that he's not going to run again, he becomes a lame duck. That's a lot of political capital he loses up on Capitol Hill. And so really the first six months, the first nine months of 2023 is the most important in our view, because that's when a lot of the legislation could get done. Mm-hmm. Nathan, you know, you mentioned FTX as well. I myself am buying my tickets down to D.C. for next week to be in those hearings. Oh, is that right? <laughs> I sure oh, am. Cool. Excellent. Uh, and, you know, I'm really curious what you expect to get out of it. So, you know, it really the big question is, is Sam Bankman-Fried going to show up or not? But even if he doesn't show up, the question I have from an investor point of view or just like wondering what the crypto industry is going to look like going forward is, What's the policymaker view? What do they want to do? Because we've seen statements from the House Financial Services Committee that they want to move forward with a stablecoin bill. We've seen statements from Sherrod Brown, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, that he wants to move forward with his own legislation. Elizabeth Warren has her own legislation. The Senate Ag Committee has their own legislation. My point here is, is that none of this legislation actually is the same. And so what I want to see is not so much the responses from the, member, or the, the people that are testifying, I want to see what the policymakers are saying in terms of provisions. Do they believe that Bitcoin and Ethereum should be a commodities, not securities? Do they believe that 98% of the tokens out there should be under the Securities and Exchange Commission? Do they believe that new custody provisions need to be put in place? So try and find that bipartisan warmth, like I mentioned before, in terms of these provisions. And then in next year, potentially they could get packaged into a bill. Hey, Nathan, we got about 30 seconds left. You said the next six to nine months, you know, in 2023 are going to be most important. What, what do you think is on the priority list here for Congress and the administration? Uh, we're telling everybody debt ceiling, debt okay. ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling. September, October of next year, the debt ceiling is going to have a tremendous impact on markets. We do not think the debt ceiling is going to get resolved anytime before then. And, you know, like we saw in 2011, fixed income markets were upset, equity markets were upset. It's just going to be a really painful time. We don't think the debt ceiling will be reached, but we are telling people that's the most important thing to look out for in 2023. Nathan, you're pretty good at this stuff. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder who hired Can him I back tell in you the something? day. I've been warning about the debt ceiling, too, for like five months here, and nobody believed me. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not worried about it, but I'll let, I'll let the people like Nathan Dean worry about it. He's the smart guy. Nathan Dean, he's a senior policy analyst. For Bloomberg Intelligence, he's down in Washington, D.C. He's on top of all that policy stuff. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's some green on the screen here today, and folks, we'll take that. It's been five days of decline, so... Uh, if nothing else, maybe a little reversion here to the mean, a little bit of buying on the dip. Um, let's see what the pros are doing here as we wind up 2022 and get set for 23. Tim Line, CEO of Antares Capital, based in Chicago, one of my favorite towns. Uh, yeah, awesome town. He's an he, undergrad from Illinois, MBA from some school there and northwestern Northwestern. yeah they (laughs) they have a heck of an mba program tim thanks so much uh for joining us here i mean i tell you you professional money managers you had a rough 2022 i mean you couldn't go to equities you couldn't go to bonds i don't know where you guys went but how are you thinking about kind of winding up this year and, and looking forward to next year 
Uh, morning, Shanali and Paul. Thanks so much for asking me to join. Uh, this year, when you look at our market, uh, volume overall uh, was down, but we expected it to be down this year. So last year was a record year. M&A volume in the U.S.-sponsored middle market's been down 10% uh, through the end of Q3. It was down 20% Q3 of this year versus last year. And really, it's down because it's challenging to finance buyouts right now. The broadly syndicated market, is, it's, they talk about this all the time in the journal, it, uh, it, in Bloomberg and, and other publications, it's very illiquid right now. And private debt lenders are committing less dollars per transaction. Mm-hmm. So, so that means, yeah, volume's down. But interestingly, so all of the deals that we finance are with private equity sponsors. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is those private equity sponsors are still executing add-on acquisitions for their investment platforms. So 75% of our deals at Antares are to support existing borrowers. So while primary M&A volumes down, our add-on activity is up almost 20% this year versus last year. Tim, I'm really curious because if you look at the market here, there's a moment. There's this moment where you have a a short-term here halt and withdrawals for certain Blackstone funds that had quarterly uh, redemptions here. I'm wondering, you know, is there something broader going on in the market, not even just about the underlying asset classes that, you know, folks, private private investors are invested in, but the strain that their investors are under. So it, it is interesting. There's been quite a bit written in the past couple of weeks about uh, both uh, BCRED and, and Blackstone's real estate fund. Um, when you look at the private debt side of their business, so the BCRED, even though they had to limit the withdrawals because they exceeded the 5% limit, that's the way the fund is set up. The fund is set up for high net worth individuals. It's, it's private. They know going in that there's a limitation on 5% quarterly withdrawals. So they signed the documents. It, it, it is what it is. And, but importantly, if you look, and Blackstone made this comment yesterday, they're overall, they had more money to come in than go out. So yep. if, if the, private, the private debt class right now in this rising rate environment is actually quite attractive because the, we structure our deals on a floating rate basis. So, uh, yeah, floating rate, rates, short maturities, credit seniority. So that actually is a pretty big positive in kind of with this global economic uncertainty right now and rising rates. You know, Shanali, if I was a young banker these days, I'd be shopping my resume around for these private uh, credit managers because it seems to be a real growth part of financial services. And Tim, when I think about your business, private credit, you know, it feels like it's a, it's a play on private equity. And, and all I know is private equity guys are raising money left, right, and center. The money's got to get put to work. How do you kind of think about that kind of driver of your business? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and you're spot on. So private equity has grown significantly. And importantly, over the next five years, pretty much any of the, um, the folks that kind of predict how the market's going to grow, private equity is supposed to 
own a greater percentage of companies five years from now, especially middle market companies, than they do today. Private equity uses private debt to finance a lot of their transactions. So private debt is forecasted to grow at double-digit annual rates, uh, private credit assets under management over the next five years. So um, that's that's pretty significant. And it's just going to, as Mm -hmm. private equity continues to raise more and more money, private debt needs to do the same thing. How much do you think that, you know, the everyday American can get really uh, exposure to this. If you think about it, this has been a secular trend away from the banking system into the private debt markets. I've covered it for 10 years here, and it's been hard to explain and hard to cover because it's not like you see it trading every day. So why does it matter to 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 people who are not large institutions? So, so a couple, just one other thing I'd add in terms of that growth. So just to give you a sense of how significant it was in the in the third quarter, because the broadly syndicated loans market was uh, in very illiquid, the banks that did underwrite deals before the market sell-off have taken billions in write-downs, and it's really constrained their appetite for underwriting. So in the third quarter, U.S.-sponsored middle market the direct lending share of that was 80% in Q3, so it's really significant. Right. Uh, the the private the so it's been available to high net worth investors for quite some time, but you do have um, public. They're called BDCs. There's a number of them out there, um, and those are available to any investor can purchase. Yep. Uh, yeah, so so they're available, um, and I think yeah, once again. The yields that those companies are paying are quite attractive. Yep. All right, Tim. Great stuff there. Tim Line, he's the CEO of Antares Capital Private Credit. (laughs) I want to get the latest on kind of what's going on there with our retailers uh, and the holiday shopping season. Plus, I want to talk about Rent the Runway. Uh, We do that with Poonam Goyle. She's a senior analyst covering all things retail with Bloomberg Intelligence. Poonam, what's the early read or maybe kind of the mid-cycle read on how this holiday shopping season's uh, shaping up? Sure. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, the holiday season is actually shaping out to be strong so far. We had a great November, both online and in stores. And we think retailers are using discounts to really draw sales and clearing that excess inventory that they've built up all year. So, so far, so good. But there's still a lot of shopping left in the coming two and a half weeks. And that will really determine if holiday did, in fact, turn out to be stronger than everyone expected. But are you like totally in trouble here if you didn't already order your goods? Because I have not. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think I think you still have time to get things online for sure before the holidays and in stores too. You know, they're stocked well. They have enough inventory this year. So you don't have to be scrambling that you may not get what you want this year. Hey, Poonam, can you talk to us about this Rent the Runway? It's a pretty cool company that just came to my awareness, you know, last four or five years, stocks up 35% today. What's the story there? Yeah, so Rent the Runway, I think it's all about execution. And I think what they've been doing for the last two quarters or proving that the execution is paying off is really putting that pedal on the profits. So this is the second quarter in a row where they have delivered positive gross margins above 40%, and EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA was positive. That's really been the key focus for many of these e-commerce companies that have IPO'd in the last few years, where we know that there's plenty of opportunity for top-line growth given how, um, how young the sector is overall, right? 
And But the focus has been on can they be profitable. And Rent the Runway so far has exceeded its plan and investors' plan on how quickly they can achieve break-even EBITDA and get to their goal of 15% adjusted EBITDA margin and free cash flow positive in the medium term. All right, good stuff. Rent the Runway again. Uh, the good news is up 33% today. The bad news is it's down 78% year-to-date, so it's got some work to do to get back. Uh, trades at $1.81 per share. Poonam Goyle, she covers all things retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. It's always good this time of year around the holidays to get a sense of how the retailers uh, are doing uh, during this holiday season, which is such a big part of their business. The countdown has begun. This May, a 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's be honest. I mean, here we are in December. It's been a brutal year for investors. You couldn't go into equities. You got slammed there even worse from a <clears throat> historic perspective for fixed income i got 2022 in my rearview mirror shanali i don't know about you and i'm looking forward to 2023 <laughs> robert teeter he's head of investment policy and strategy group at silvercrest asset management he joins us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio robert give us your post-mortem on 2022 we've got a few weeks left but you know if you're picking up and talking to one of your clients how would you kind of put that into perspective Sure. I'd, I'd characterize the year as being defined by one word, which is inflation. So yep. we had a, a massive drawdown uh, in both fixed income and equities, as you said. Nowhere to hide and nowhere to hide because of inflation. So the Fed working against you, uh, rates heading higher, valuations heading down. If you zoom out a little bit and look back to pre-pandemic through now, you've had earnings growing about 40 percent. Fed uh, stocks only up about 20, and most of that has come in that compression in multiples in the past year. So I think one word defined the year, which is inflation, made it a really tough year. So something I've been wondering a lot about is a lot of investors got so burned this year in the heat of everything you're saying. Are they too burned to deploy significant capital next year should the opportunity arise? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that's characterized this year a little bit differently from some prior declines is that we're coming on the back of very big gains over the prior few years. So I think that puts people in a little bit of a better spot. If you zoom out, uh, wealth is generally up over the past three years, even over the last two years. So it's really just been this year of decline. So I do think there is some appetite for risk when you get inflation off the table and when you get the Fed uh, sort of out of uh, fighting against you for a bit. So what are you telling your clients for 2023? I know you're penned or you are going to pen your letter to your clients talking about next year. What are you telling them? Sure. So we think there are two components to this story, as there always are. Uh, on the earnings side, we see a pretty tight range of outcomes. So we think slow economic growth, uh, probably not a big recession. So slow numbers on the economic side, slow numbers on the earnings side with kind of a tight range. So sort of a back to boring environment, low economic growth, maybe, you know, minus 5% on earnings to plus 5%, kind of in a tight range. So the whole story will be multiples and it will be a bit choppy, um, but we do think there will be some valuation recovery. So similar to what we've seen in the past six weeks or so, as you get inflation trending down, uh, you get a little bit of relief on the multiple side. So we think next year could be an okay year for stocks uh, and also an okay year for bonds, both on the basis of inflation fading throughout the course of the year. There seems to be no consensus here on how bad things can get. 
And whether or not you think that there's a mild recession or a deep recession or things are priced in, how nervous are your clients and how split are they? And how is that impacting what they might do next? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that we've seen from from both clients and professional investors and everyone has been a tendency to take the, the latest news data point and sort of extrapolate it over the years. So inflation's here, therefore let's assume it's going to be here forever. Uh, economic weakness is probably coming on the basis of you know lagged effects of, of Fed rate hikes, so maybe that will be here forever. And we're trying to step back from that a little bit and just look through a little bit of the noise on that front. So I, I do think there's some concern. Uh, there are legitimate concerns, I think, around economic slowdown, around inflation maybe not cool as quickly as possible. But bigger picture, we think both things are probably headed in the right direction over the course of a full year next year. So what sectors should, are you suggesting to your clients that maybe they think about some exposure to? Is it some of the traditional growth tech names that have worked so well for everybody since the, I don't know, the great financial crisis? Or is it more kind of reopening plays, whether they're cyclicals or, uh, you know, how, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think there, there is still some room to go uh, in some of the consumer space. So our work shows that there's been a, you know, a big over-earning, if you will, in the good space of the economy, thinking in terms of GDP, the good sectors have over-earned, probably well above trend, a little bit of payback still there. But on the services side, sort of under-earning and under-appreciated uh, in terms of potential future growth for uh, consumer on the services side. Uh, the other thing that we really like is the small cap space. So there's, okay. th- there's a lot of uh, return to focus on domestic activity in the U.S. It might not be directly going into these small cap companies, but sort of the old-fashioned multiplier effect of more CapEx spending, more re-onshoring, wends its way into earnings for small cap companies. I'm wondering also, we've been talking a lot here about not just the public markets, but private markets. And you hear some of the stresses that are in the private markets, and then you hear the CEOs talk about this great wealth opportunity. But do the wealthy individuals want to buy as much as they think they do? I think there's a, there's a little bit of both sides of that argument. So one thing that we've been careful with in private equity is emphasizing that there are great opportunities, um, but it's not one size fits all. The entire opportunity set might not be compelling. And so it's really important to recognize that uh, certain firms in the space are doing strong and good work in terms of improving companies, improving earnings, the same way that you create wealth in the public markets, which is compounding of earnings over time, growing capital. Um, that's really the true story. That exists in a lot of the opportunities in the private equity equity space, not all of them. I think there had been maybe perhaps a little bit too much enthusiasm and and lack of willingness to dig through the surface, Uh, but that's starting to come to fruition now. And so we think there's an important opportunity in private equity, just very careful to be selective about how you pursue it. Today, we've been talking a lot here on Bloomberg Radio about ExxonMobil. They're raising their salaries for most of their employees by 9%. That's a good thing. Uh, We've been looking at the stock. Stock's up 70 some odd percent this year. That's a good thing. They upped their buyback another $50 billion. Has energy kind of had its run, or are you guys thinking that maybe there's more room to go there? I mean, I think there's probably a bit more room to go. It's been interesting to watch the divergence of oil prices coming down and energy stocks still continuing to perform strongly. And I think that's on the basis of just a recognition that we've moved energy in terms of national importance from something lower down on the stack to much higher up on the stack. And so I think there's a willingness to invest in that space, invest in the areas, uh, and really a willingness to recognize that this is going to be a continuing, ongoing issue for some time. And so while oil prices are down now, probably not likely to, you know, spike again very quickly. Um, But long term, it's a space where there will be continued activity. And so we do think there's some opportunity there. You know, another thing about this is, you know, we talk so much about public market stocks, some of these exciting sectors. What about 
the things that are harder to see. I mean, real, realistically, the, the interesting trades this year were macro, commodities. And um, what, how has that kind of changed the calculus here on kind of how non-traditional your clients are looking to invest? Yeah, that's a good question, too. So over the years, like many, we've seen an increase in interest in alternative investments, you know, sort of first in hedge funds, then into private equity. I think the, the real key for this year was finding things that, that weren't correlated to that one direction inflation trade and sort of uh, push down on valuation and, and push down on, on bonds. Yeah, we're clients and, buying the dollar yeah, <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day. Yes. So anything in alternatives, we sort of view as a third leg of the stool. So you have traditional equity risk uh, most times, but not always fixed income offsets that. This year it didn't. And so so it's a great argument for why there should be a third leg to the stool and some alternatives in some portfolios for clients who can handle the illiquidity. All right, Robert, thank you so much uh, for joining us here. Robert Teeter, he's head of investment policy and in the strategy group at Silvercrest Asset Management. He's a neighbor of ours here in Midtown Manhattan. So we appreciate getting him here in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. I want to pivot to China here because I tell you, the Chinese government's, you know, is really seemingly... Uh, making an about face here and kind of really kind of reopening their economy a little bit more aggressively than I think most people thought. And we saw that. We said, we got to get Tom Orlick on the air. Why? Because, Tom, he's their chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. So he's a smart person to talk to. But he lived in Beijing for many years. He worked in Beijing for many years. He knows what it's like, uh, the Chinese government is like, and how it plays out over time. So, Tom, love to, thanks so much for joining us here. Are you at all surprised here about kind of what we've seen from the Chinese officials over the last several days in terms of reopening? I think it is surprising, Paul. Um, if you'd asked me uh, a few weeks ago, and I think if you'd asked most people who follow China a few weeks ago, when is China going to make the big pivot towards reopening? The answer would have been, well, we don't know, but probably March 2023 is a decent bet. Get through the winter, get vaccines into people's arms, and then reopen. So the pivot that we've seen in the last few days um, has really been a surprise and substantially earlier than, than I think I expected and, and many in the markets expected. I'm really curious about what this means for investors, because obviously there's been a fair bit of pain this year. I'm wondering about the ripple effects. From where I sit, Tom, there was an interesting phenomenon here where you saw a lot of Chinese investors start to sell Blackstone's major real estate fund to the point that they had to halt redemptions. And the reason yesterday that Steve Schwartzman had given for this was not just the fact that the index was down, but also the fact that regional investors were so highly levered. And that leverage issue has played out over and over and over in so many different ways when you think about the Chinese economy. So how do you think about the pockets of pain that might still exist when it comes to leverage? So I think the leverage question is a really interesting one, uh, Shinali. Uh, and when I think about it in the Chinese context, I think about the huge volume of debt which China has taken on over the last 10 or 15 years and the way that's going to continue playing out, especially as we see the pain continuing in the property sector. Um, when I think about the leverage question globally and how China plays into that, well, of course, China's reopening is a significant positive for China's economy, a significant positive for China's markets, um, but it adds an additional level of risk for the rest of the world. When China reopens, we've got 1.4 billion Chinese people going from stuck at home to getting back in their cars, getting on the train, getting on the airplane. That has to be a driver 
of global energy prices. Potentially, that adds an additional leg to global inflation in the year ahead, forces the Fed and other central banks to do more to get inflation under control, and of course, adds to the pain for investors who've taken on a lot of debt. Tom, I wonder just how this reopening is going to occur. Do we know what percentage of their population is vaxxed? Do we know if it's an effective vaccination? Is this country setting itself up for a surge in cases and, and you know, other bad news? I think that's absolutely the right question to be asking, Paul. Uh, China does not have the leading-edge mRNA vaccines, which have played such an important role in protecting public health in the U.S. and in Europe. Neither have they been particularly successful at getting the less effective Chinese vaccines into people's arms. Um, and what that means is that as reopening happens, as cases inevitably rise, then the next step, sadly, is going to be an increase in hospitalizations and, yes, an increase um, and that raises a question, well, how does China's government then react? Is there the potential for a bumpy path ahead in the next six months? Could this be a backward and forward process as China attempts to contain what could be a public health emergency whilst retaining the benefits of reopening? These are big, important questions. I think we're going to have to wait and see how they play out in the weeks ahead. Of the next six to 12 months, what are you most concerned about in terms of both what can happen on the mainland, but also what could happen in terms of any ripple effects it might have to the countries that are trading partners or, um, you know, relying on their supply chains (laughs) and um, emerging markets that are suffering already? So I think if you sort of think about where we were on China uh, a few weeks ago, Shanali, Uh, We had lockdowns still in place. Uh, We had the property sector in a major correction. um, And we had U.S.-China relations spiraling down. Um, And in the last few weeks, we've had a move to reopen. We've had more support for the property sector and perhaps more on the way. And we've had that shake hands meeting between Xi and Biden in Bali which didn't deliver a lot of substance in terms of improving the relationship, but at least sort of hedged against the risk of a, of a downward spiral. So on all of those big issues on COVID, on property, on relations with the United States, the signs from China in the last few weeks have all been in the right direction. They've all been what the market wanted to hear. So the base case for China in the year ahead is now a little bit more positive than it was. We're penciling in 5.1% GDP growth for China. Good news for the Chinese people, good news for investors in China. As we discussed, potentially not great news for the rest of the world as they grapple with inflation and now that potential inflationary impulse that comes as China reopens and amps up its demand for commodity. Right. Hey, Tom, I'd love to get your opinion on Hong Kong. It's it's long been one of my favorite places in the world. I mean, it's just a global, was a global financial hub, you know, along the lines of New York and London. What do you think the future of Hong Kong is? So I think it's really interesting, Paul. Um, And uh, I think it's really interesting because you've had these two kind of big forces interacting at the same time, right? 
one force has been the kind of the uh, the national security law, um, and all that has meant for uh, the sort of one country, two systems approach, um, and the fear that that's going to bring Hong Kong much closer to the mainland in terms of the way its government, its legal system, and its media operate. At the same time, you've had the COVID pandemic, and all that has meant in terms of lockdowns and quarantines and difficulty getting in and out of the uh, of the place. Um, yeah. So both of those things have been happening at the same time, and they've both been negatives for Hong Kong standing as a, as a global financial center. Yeah. Well, in the months ahead, we're going to see the COVID drag disappearing, yeah. but the national security law drag staying in place. Yeah, that's going to be and a so tough... What that's going to mean is we're going to be able to sort of disentangle those two effects yep. and see if Hong Kong's standing as a global financial center is still there or not. All right, Tom. Great stuff, as always. Love getting your perspective. Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, getting the update on China. It appears that China is reopening. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.